going to be in Luke chapter 11 in just a moment here. Luke chapter 11. Uh, Over the past several months, Pastor Daniel's been sharing with us some of the biblical principles of being fruitful and multiplying, filling. And in a couple weeks, we're going to be touching on what it means biblically to have dominion and and how these principles in particular um, are relevant to those of us who are members of The Rock, not just here in Kalamazoo or in Battle Creek, but at all of the campuses, starting with our first uh, church out in Anaheim, California. And so we're going to be continuing on with that in a couple weeks. But uh, these uh, principles are found in Genesis chapter 1. And this next little portion of this particular series is going to be what it means to biblically have dominion. And so that will lead us up to the God Swears series that is going to be coming in September. So we're looking forward to that. Next week, Pastor Julia is back on platform, and she's going to be setting things up for us as we begin learning about what it means to apply these principles that we have been learning from Pastor Daniel so far, as well as setting us up for what it means to have uh, dominion. Now, here's the thing. During the season where we've been talking about these particular principles, all of us have been believing in at least some capacity or another that the Lord is going to manifest those principles in our lives. Whether um, we're believing for uh, you know, fruitfulness and multiplying, my wife and I are working on that right now because uh, we've, we've got a kid coming in uh, November, so we, we're, we're, on, we're on track for that one. Um, but regardless here, the, the level of breakthrough that we see in our lives, the, the degree of multiplication or filling and eventually having dominion or um, being fruitful, those, the level that we're going to see breakthrough in our life is going to correlate to the intentionality of our prayer life. Amen? Martin Luther, the, the great uh, Protestant reformer, said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer was something that was a fundamental exercise in the Old Testament. We see that. There's all sorts of examples to just name a couple. We know that in Exodus 33:13, Moses goes before the Lord and says, would you have favor upon me. In Psalm 51, King David goes before the Lord after being called out by Nathan for his indiscretions with uh, Bathsheba and pleads for forgiveness and from there asks for the Lord to continue to guide him going forward. You also have somebody uh, like the prophet Elijah who just really got frustrated dealing with these prophets of Baal and cries out to the Lord to just send fire because he's tired of dealing with this mess and the Lord responds. And so prayer is something that we see as a central theme all throughout the Old Testament. And as we transition into the new, then it shouldn't be a surprise that that trend continues, especially when we see that Jesus Christ himself was intentional about getting away from the crowds, about getting away from his disciples, and making sure that he was spending time alone with the Father himself. The gospel accounts are replete, meaning many, with examples concerning this particular exercise in practice that Jesus himself took part of. And so, here's the thing. The prayer life of Jesus had to have been something that was extremely noticeable because the disciples actually went to him and said, would you teach us how to do this? Um, 
I, I, sometimes I like to put myself in the shoes of some of the biblical personalities that we, we read about, and I'd like to think that I'm somebody that would be holy enough to go and say to Jesus, if I was one of his disciples, would you teach me how to pray? But here's the thing, I'm probably not. Uh, I'm probably that guy that's like, hey, Jesus, remember when you controlled the weather? You were taking a nap in the boat, and there were like this raging storm, and you stood up, and you're like, be still. That was awesome. (laughs) Can can I, you want to teach me to do that? Oh, all right, okay. Or how about this one? Hey, you know, Jesus, you know how you've been able to feed megachurches of 20,000 plus people with a kid's lunchable of cheese and crackers and a Capri Sun? That was awesome. Okay, I'm the guy that wants to know how to do that kind of thing. But no, if we open up our Bibles now to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1, would you read with me verses 1 through 4 together? Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now we're going to switch from the New King James real quickly over to the King James Version because this is where the doxology part of the Lord's Prayer closes. And it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what I want to try and do today, as best as I am able, I want us to try and put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples of Jesus about 2,000 years ago as Jesus is explaining to them this model prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer, though a lot of scholars would like to switch it around and actually say it's the disciples' prayer because Jesus is teaching his disciples the format for how to pray in a way that realigns our heart to the Father's. And so let me see if I can try and explain this a little bit. Um, Before I begin, though, I want to say I know that there are um, people here today who whenever we begin to talk about um, fathers, uh, your situation was certainly less than ideal. And I don't know what your circumstances may be, and I don't know the hurts um, that your earthly father may have caused you, but I do know that our Heavenly Father is perfect, He is amazing, and He is more than able to help heal those wounds that have been caused by your earthly father. Amen? Okay, so what I want to do now is I want us to just kind of see if we can get into the minds of the disciples as Jesus is explaining to them the Lord's Prayer. So let's take this with our first line, our Father in heaven. Okay. So here's the deal. Back in the ancient Near East, and there are some branches of Judaism that I believe still do this, it was pretty much a common practice where parents would begin at a very early age, around the age of five, maybe six at the latest, to have their kids begin to memorize the Torah, 
which is the first five books of the Old Testament. We also refer to it at times as the Pentateuch. And so we're looking at memorizing the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy often before they reach the age of 12 or 13. So imagine what it would be like if you went to your five-year-old and said to them, here, I need you to learn the Pentateuch. How's that for a happy birthday? By the way, here's the second gift. You get to start with the book of Leviticus, okay? All right, that was oftentimes the book that was first begun. That was the book that a lot of kids would actually commonly begin to memorize first. And so what's going on here is these disciples, as Jesus is explaining to them this concept of the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, and he starts off right away saying, Our Father in heaven, these are the things that probably have come to mind in the mindset of the disciples because it's been ingrained in them from the time they were five. These are the things that come to mind. They know he's the creator in Genesis 1. He whispers and universes are created. He is Elohim, the existing and self-revealing one. He is El-Rai, the God who sees me, Genesis 16, 13. By the way, that is the first um, time that a human actually memorializes God with a name, and it was Hagar. It was a slave woman. Genesis 17 says, He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. In Genesis 22, 14, he's known as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. In Exodus 3, 14, he goes before Moses and he says, I am. Can you comprehend that? I can't. He's also known as the deliverer. Um, of his covenant people, which is what the book of Exodus is all about. This is an incredible, incredible story, and there's a reason why we see the exodus of the Hebrew people into the promised land come up over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it's because of the fact that God showed himself in such an incredible way. His omnipotence or his complete and total power was on display in such a way that it had all the people who were not part of God's chosen people freaking out. God started doing the, the, the plagues with the frogs and, and the locusts, and the, the Nile River was turned into blood, and now you've got these Egyptians that are like freaking out, and they're like, would you just go? You, I know you're my slaves, but get out of here, okay? You're freaking us out. The, the, the Egyptians went, they start emptying their bank accounts, cashing in their stock options and IRAs, throwing their car keys at them, emptying their fridge, emptying their gun safes, and they're like, go, okay? Pharaoh is crazy. I can't believe he hasn't let you go yet, but would you get out of here? He is the deliverer of his covenant people, and the disciples already knew this. But here's what else we've learned. He's also in Exodus 15, 26. He is Jehovah Rapha. He is the healer. He is also Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner, Exodus 17, 15. He's Jehovah Makedesh, the sanctifier, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8. He is El Elyon, the Most High God, Deuteronomy 26, 19. This is just in the Pentateuch. This is just in the first five books of the Bible. And this reality is the most 
comprehensive thing that is in the minds of these disciples when they hear the term, our Father in heaven. This is what comes to mind. We haven't even gotten to the sixth book of the Old Testament because in Judges, Gideon goes before the Lord and says, the Lord is my peace. Judges 6, 24. He is also Jehovah Tzikednu. The Lord is my righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6. He is Jehovah uh, Rohi. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. And he is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 1, 3. Now, I'm not trying to get trivial with all of these you know, details explaining the nature and the character of God. But again, this is who comes to mind as Jesus is explaining to them, open up this model prayer with our Father in heaven. That is who you're referring to. It's not this like distant, ethereal type of being. It is real. And there's a history there. There's a history there that I don't think we can fully grasp in the United, as Americans here in the United States in 2016. I don't think we're able to grasp that, but that history was there. And when we take into account all of these things that I've just rattled off, can, just showing the magnitude and the greatness and the grandeur and the power of the God that we worship, Proverbs 1-7 ought to give us a completely different lens when we read, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Because let me explain something. When we go through that list of, of things that I just explained that explain the glory of God, that is terrifying. And I don't mean it's terrifying from the angle of um, you're afraid to fly or you have a, fra- or you have a fear of spiders or you have a fear of heights or, 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 or whatever. I'm saying this is absolute omnipotence that is on display and it is beyond comprehension and yet they know that this is a reality just as much as they are able to tell you that they know that they need air to breathe. This is just as much of a reality. Omnipotence is on display. Omnipotence just means absolute, complete power without any single weakness whatsoever. And it's on display. And by the way, this particular God has a track record of meaning exactly what he has said. Amen? This Jehovah, this Yahweh, this Elohim is worthy of us being in awe. Which leads us into the second line, hallowed be your name. Now for a long time, whenever I would you know, say the Lord's Prayer, when it came to hallowed be your name, I really thought that hallowed was just a, a, a synonym for holy. That I could have, instead of saying hallowed be your name, I could have said holy is your name, worthy is your name. And while those terms certainly do fit, hallowed or hallowed is, is not an adjective, it's a verb. It's an action. And so when Jesus is telling the disciples, we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What it's actually saying is, may we just lift up your name, hot Father. After all those things that we've seen that you are, we lift it up. We revere your name. And see, here's the thing. 
because of how we are now understanding that, there's a, that there is reverence that is involved in this particular prayer, we have moved beyond the Lord's Prayer being this cute little passage that we put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. There's reverence that's involved. It's not trite. It's not this cute little passage that we recite just because we were taught it when we were four. I'm not against people putting the, the, the word of the Lord in you at a young age. What I am for, though, is that we understand the depths and the magnitudes of those words that are found in here for a lifetime. So why is it that we revere the Lord? Why is he worthy? It's because of his holiness. The word holy means having absolute perfect moral rectitude of life. There's no blemish. There's no flaw. This is absolute perfection. The word holy is the term that is most frequently used throughout the Bible to describe the character and the nature of God. Second is just. Third is loving. And what makes this something that is important is the fact that while we have a sense of justice, if we're being honest with ourselves, our sense of justice is often biased and flawed. And we have the ability to love, although our ability to love is often skewed, and a lot of times, if we're being honest, it's rooted in selfishness, which means it's really not love. But what makes God's sense of justice in his love credible is the fact that it is first and foremost anchored in holiness. And his omnipotence becomes far less terrifying when we realize that he's holy. And then it becomes welcoming. Amen. Another reason that the name of God is uh, revered, and we should do it, continue to do so today, is back in the times of ancient Israel, it was forbidden to speak the name of the Lord Yahweh. In, in fact, when scribes would uh, begin to uh, transcribe and, and, and copy down additional manuscripts and, and scrolls, Whenever it came to the word Yahweh, what they would do is they would first stand up and go over to a basin. They would wash themselves. Then they would go back, pick up a pen or a quill or a brush or whatever utensil it was that they were using. And then they would write out Y, what, what we would translate into our English alphabet is Y-H-W-H. They wouldn't even spell out the whole name. Because to speak it or defile to speak it or write it out would be defiling the most holy name in the cosmos. That was how it was revered. And so this is the God that the disciples immediately thought of when the name was brought up, when it was brought to conscious. And this is the God who, through his son Jesus Christ, calls us his sons and daughters. Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, the main theme of Jesus's ministry here on earth centered around the kingdom. Now, in the book of Matthew, what we read about is the kingdom of heaven, while in Mark and Luke, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Now, the two terms are, are synonyms for one another. They mean the same thing. One of the things that's kind of interesting is that 61 times we see references made to the kingdom in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, John's a little bit different. In the book of John, kingdom is a word that is used twice, but it is inferred to 22 times, giving us a grand total of 85 times that Jesus is referring to the kingdom throughout the four gospels. And so what does that mean when Jesus says the kingdom, your kingdom come? What does that mean? Well, this is something that's been uh, kind of interesting to me as I've been doing a little bit of research on this. The Greek word where we get the word kingdom is actually the word basileia, basileia. And it is not in reference to an actual literal kingdom, but the true authority and right to rule over that said kingdom. And so when we say your kingdom come, your will be done. What is actually being said is, Lord, would you come here to earth and rule here the way that you do in heaven? Would you take ownership of that right that you have to rule? And would you come here and would you rule? In other words, Father, would you please come and reign sovereignly here on earth so that we can be governed and ruled by your holiness, your ways, your perfection, your beauty, your fullness, your strength? Can we experience your justice, your love, your peace? Come, Father, with holy omnipotence. Kind of reminds me of Exodus thirty-three, eighteen, when Moses says, "Show me your glory." Many of us here have at least had glimpses of the Lord's sovereignty on display in our lives, and we've recognized that this whole kingdom reality provides fullness in all things beyond our current ability to comprehend, and we know that we can entrust Him with our entire life, which brings us to our next line. Give us day by day our daily bread. Now, as Jesus is explaining this to the disciples, there's a bit more that's at stake here than simply, can we have enough food to eat? And while that is certainly part of the prayer, it goes deeper than that. And the reason that this is something that's significant is because back in, in, in Bible days, When it came to the issue of bread, if you were not part of a royal family or you were not part of a wealthy family, then bread typically constituted the largest percentage of your caloric intake. And bread back in those days wasn't quite as easy as running to Costco or a local bakery and grabbing yourself a few loaves and throwing them in the freezer to last you for the next few weeks. Bread was, was, was typically something that 
an individual had to make and bake on a daily basis. And a lot of these people at this time didn't always have access to a millstone that did the grinding of the grain for them, which meant that on a daily basis, people would have to get up in the morning, grab a large, mostly flat stone, spread the grain out onto the rock, grab another rock or stone, and by hand begin to grind it up and crush it. There were two particular uh, grains that were used frequently back at this time. One of them was wheat, and the other one was barley. Those were a couple of the primary grains that were used. And a lot of scholars believe that wheat was more expensive than the barley. And one of the economic reasons behind that could have been because barley is known to, at least some forms of it, barley is known to have more of a chewy texture, which means it's going to be a lot harder to grind down. Normal, normal wheat, sure, that's hard mostly. It'll grind down nice. But barley takes a little bit more effort, or a lot more effort. And so one of the articles that I was reading, the author stated that it was not necessarily uncommon if somebody didn't have access to that millstone and they had to, by hand, grind up the grain, that they could spend upwards of three hours every morning grinding up just enough grain to have enough flour to bake bread for a family of four for a single day. And so when we're reading, Lord, give us day by day our daily bread, it's not just food, it's the strength to get up, the physical strength to do that in addition to whatever other jobs they had to do throughout the day, whether it was tending their fields, whether it was um, making sure that their livestock, if they had it, was getting fed and watered. There's a, a need emotionally to be able to still connect and, and love on your family well. And then, <laughs> at night, when you lay down to rest, you pray that the Lord's going to give you enough strength to do it all over again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And the reason that this is something that is just amazing to me is um, because this, better than anything, I believe helped them understand where their dependence truly lied. Where do they get their strength from? Where do they get their food from? Where do they get their emotional ability to even just want to get up the next day? And, and again, I know that we're saying that from a perspective of people who are in a very developed culture and, and society, but still, it's got to take a toll on you over, over a course of time. But this is something where they began to realize that they were reliant on the Lord for every single thing. The very air that they breathed, they recognized, was a gift from the Lord. And it's, we, it's when we get to this point where we become so reliant on the Lord, that it finally clicks in our spirit, clicks in our soul, it clicks in our heart, it clicks in our mind, that this kingdom reality it becomes so real to us. It's more real than when our five senses are all cooperating together. And it's at this point 
that we say, Father God, I will pursue you. We will pursue the Father through the Son with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we'll go after it with every fiber in our being. When we get to this point, it is at this particular time that we begin to really understand and realize what the concept of lordship really means, which allows us to then go into and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this is not so much the initial repentance of sin that we do when we are saved and we receive salvation. This is actually a statement that we make in an effort to become continually aware of the sin that is in our lives, not so that we condemn ourselves, not so that we beat ourselves up, but more in the spirit of King David, when in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. It's saying, Father, I want to be like you and worship you with my entire life. So keep me aware of the sin that is in my life that keeps me from total and complete intimacy with you. May I treat others who wrong me with the same grace that you always freely extend to me. I want to be more like you. I want to be conformed more and more into the image and likeness of your son. When we get to that point in lordship where we recognize that there is sin in our life that needs to be dealt with, and we're ready to go to war with it. It's in moments like that where we begin to start digging up and facing the fact that we've got issues like pride, greed, an unrepentant heart, bitterness, jealousy, hatred, rage, anger. But when we get to that point, where we get to that point, where we say, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those that sin against us. So when we get to that point of lordship that we're ready to make sure that those sins no longer have any type of root in our life. Finally, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The meaning here is not that God tempts us because Scripture makes it very clear in passages like James 1.13 that God does not tempt anyone. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he also guarantees that he'll provide a way out so that we can endure. It doesn't mean that the temptation or the test or the trial, however you want to interpret that particular Greek word into English and translate that, doesn't mean that we're going to be removed from that scenario, but he does promise that we will have his strength and his power to find our way through that situation. Amen? So what Jesus is teaching his disciples right here when he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, what, the, what he's trying to get the disciples to understand is that they need to pray, Lord, spare us from circumstances that would tempt us to sin against you. 
You've been so good to us. We do not want to defame your name. We don't want to do anything that would bring up a barrier in between our intimacy level. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't want to dishonor your name. Give us the strength. When I'm aware of how I'm becoming prideful, give me the strength and deliver me from this evil. When I'm aware that bitterness is creeping up, deliver me. The King James closes the Lord's Prayer with doxology, which means a short praise found at the end of a hymn, psalm, or prayer. And it just says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think that's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. There are thousands of books that have been written about prayer, and this is considered to be the model prayer that Jesus used when he was teaching his disciples to pray. And while there are many verses that talk more specifically about how prayers are answered and the posture that we take before the Lord when we need to have prayers answered, what this first of all does is it realigns our hearts and it shows us better how to pray and for what to pray. There was a missionary to India by the name of E. Stanley Jones who wrote these words specifically about the Lord's Prayer. He wrote, Prayer is cooperation with God. In prayer, you align your desires, your will, your life to God. You and God become agreed on life desires, life purposes, life plans, and you work them out together. Prayer cleanses, chastens our desires, realigns them so that you cannot tell where your desires end and God's desires begin. So what excuses do we come up with for not having a powerful prayer life? Too tired? Too busy? What keeps us from being so closely connected to the Father in heaven that we can't tell where our desires begin and where our desires end and God's begin? John Piper uh, once said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Selah. (laughs) That means just sit there and meditate on that. Before anybody else decides to get self-righteous, like, I don't go on Twitter, I don't go on Facebook, how much time do you spend every day on your mobile device? Yep, I went there. If we really believed that our God was as big as we have just seen him to be, we would instantly stop making our day-to-day issues bigger than he is. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have issues that we're dealing with. We still have an enemy that we have to declare the word over and we have to fight on a daily basis. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not marginalizing whatever struggles you are going through right now. But what I am saying is that the God that we serve is far bigger and his love for us is far deeper and it's anchored in holiness. 